It's good to have you gathered here this morning for our Sunday school class in this mid-August time in which we find ourselves. My name is Ryan Bonfilio. I'm one of the ministers here at First Pres, and we're delighted that you are with us this morning. This is week two of a special Sunday school edition of what is known as Theology Matters here at First Pres. Theology Matters, as some of you know, is a Christian education program at the church where we explore interesting ideas about the Bible, theology, and church history in a format that we hope that is accessible and engaging to laypersons. It's a way of trying to take some ideas uh, about education in the Bible and theology and package them in a way that makes sense uh, for a lay audience. So this is, we typically host these uh, programs on Wednesday or Thursday nights, but we wanted to give you a taste of Theology Matters by bringing it here to Sunday morning. And we started that cl a new class last week called The Bible in Translation, A Brief History. It's a four-week class that will take place here in this morning. This is week two of that series. Uh, and I'm co-teaching it with our Stembler fellow, Cassie Waits, uh, on the end. And then also Lydia Foreman, who is our new intern in teaching and theological education. And we'll be going back and forth throughout this whole series in teaching. And this week, for a couple different reasons, we're all going to be teaching. Uh, so you'll see three of us giving various parts of the lecture today. Last week we began our consideration of the history of the Bible in translation by discussing how we, we often take it for granted that if you go into any bookstore, if you, if you browse Amazon.com, you can find countless versions of the Bible in English. Some of those translations are very familiar to you, the NRSV, the KJV, the NIV. Some of the tr English translations that are out there are less familiar, things like the New Living Translation or Young's Literal Translation. We'll return to both of them in week four of this series. But things have not always been this way. The Bible, after all, didn't float down from heaven in English. And when the Bible was first written many, many years ago, the English language had not yet been invented. So how did we get from the original Hebrew and Aramaic of the Old Testament and the original Greek of the New Testament all the way down to the Bible in English? This is the question that we're going to raise throughout this course. And last week we, we began that consideration of the history of the Bible in translation by looking at what is known as the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was one of the earliest, if not the earliest, translation of the Bible outside of its original languages. And Cassie walked us through many aspects of the Septuagint. It's a fascinating translation, not only because it brought... Uh, the Hebrew scriptures into the language of the Greek-speaking world, but also in process, the Greek translation really was more than just a translation. For the Greek translation changed in many ways how the Bible looked. It changed the order of some of the books in the Old Testament that we are familiar with, uh, and it also even changed some of the content of what those stories included. So in many ways, that first translation, the Greek Septuagint, was more than just a translation. It was a transformation of how the Bible uh, looked and how it was used. This week, we're going to continue that history in two different ways. First, in a very brief amount of time, I'm going to speed us forward through about 1,500 years of Bible translation. Now, a lot happens between the Septuagint and the first English Bibles, and we're going to quickly treat that history. I'm going to name a controversy that arises, an important controversy that arises, but I want to talk you through two other important early translations, and then I'm going to turn things over to Lydia and, and Cassie to talk through the rise of the English Bible during the Reformation period, really that first time when we begin to see Scripture 
uh, fully in English uh, and, and how it's connected to the Reformation. So that's the task ahead of us this morning. Let me quickly pray, and then we'll turn to that controversy. God of heaven, we're grateful to be gathered today to think and study and reflect together on the history of your scriptures and how it came to be that we read this word of God in, an ang- in a language that we know so well. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray that you open our hearts and our minds this morning as we come to understand you and your scripture more fully. Amen. I want to bring us back to something that Cassie talked about last week. The Greek Septuagint, that, that translation of the Old Testament into Greek, which was the dominant language of the world uh, in the years leading up to the time of Christ, that translation, the Greek translation, both by Christians and Jews, were, were considered to be a miraculous translation. If you remember, if you were here last week, Cassie told these, told these great stories about how the Septuagint miraculously came into existence. It was not just seen as a translation, but that old Greek translation of the Old Testament was, was thought to be divinely inspired. It wasn't a translation. The Septuagint was the Bible, even more so than the original Hebrew. So this was true among Christians. It was true among Jewish communities. And in many ways, it illustrates the way in which translations can be held in such high regard in various uh, communities. But it also presents a problem. Because what happens when the inspired, miraculous translation of the Bible into Greek differs from the original Hebrew. Which Bible is the real Bible? The original Hebrew or the translated Greek? This was a live and active question during the time of the early church and the early Jewish community. And to give you an example of how the controversy gets played out, I want to look at a particular verse and the controversies that surround how it is translated. Now, the verse that we're going to look at, uh, it comes from Isaiah 7.14. And I've talked about this verse in various other contexts here at First Pres, but it's worth revisiting what's happening. Some of you will be familiar with this verse in Isaiah 7.14. Uh, in the context, uh, the, the prophet is talking about the birth of a child who would be named Emmanuel. And in that uh, prediction of a child who would be born, who would be named Emmanuel, uh, the verse says something particular about the mother. And here's how it goes. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son, and she shall name him Emmanuel. Now, some of you have heard this verse before, correct? Where do you know it from? Now, you might know it from Isaiah 7, but where else do you know this from? From Christmas, that's right, Cassandra, because this is a passage that the angel Gabriel quotes when talking to Joseph about Mary being pregnant and about to have a child named Jesus. So the New Testament draws on this language. Here's where things get interesting. The controversy centers around the word Isaiah uses to describe the child's mother. In Hebrew, that word, as you can see uh, in italics there, is alma. And in Hebrew, alma simply means young woman. Okay? Now, the Hebrew uh, might, uh, the idea of, of a young woman in Hebrew, it might imply that the, the woman was a virgin. Right? Young women can be virgins, of course. That's, that's certainly possible. And the Hebrew term used here certainly allows for that understanding. Um, the problem is, Hebrew has another word, betulah, 
that more specifically means virgin. So see what's going on here. The Hebrew uses a word that means alma. It has another word that could mean virgin, but the Hebrew doesn't use that word. Okay, so what's the big deal? The problem is the Greek translation understands the young woman quite differently. In the Septuagint, here's how it's translated. The Septuagint authors say, look, the virgin, and here the Greek word is parthenos, is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. In the Greek translation, that Hebrew word which means young woman is understood specifically to mean virgin. Now, Greek had another word, neanus, and you guys correct me on my Greek at any point. Both of these two are uh, precepting Greek at Columbia Theological Seminary this summer, so I always am going to defer to them uh, in my Greek knowledge. Um, uh, Greek has another word, neanus, which means young woman. So look what, do you follow what's happening? The Greek translation is making a strong interpretation of the Hebrew alma to not just mean young woman, but to mean virgin. Now why, friends, is this such a controversial issue? Imagine you are a Christian community reading the Septuagint and finding that it's a virgin that is with child and, how, and shall bear a son. Why is that significant to the Christian community? Because precisely, again, that the angel Gabriel quotes this passage in reference to Jesus' birth. And we know that Jesus' mother, Mary, was a virgin. Not just a young woman, but a virgin. So controversy developed. Which, trans, which version is correct? Is it the original Hebrew that's correct? Or is it the Greek translations? Well, here's how the various sides adjudicate the issue. On the Christian side leading the charge with a church father named Justin in the second century. And Justin makes the radical claim that the discrepancy arises because the Jews, now follow this logic, Justin says the Jews doctored the original Hebrew. Justin makes this claim. He says, look, the Hebrew originally had Betelah, which means virgin, but the Jews were worried about the Christians using this verse from the Old Testament to point to Christ. So the way they try to get around that is that the, the Jews actually changed the Hebrew from Betelah to Alma. So he accuses the Jews of tampering with the text. Now, Justin didn't have any evidence of doing this, and as far as we can tell, uh, this, in fact, did not happen. But this conclusion that Justin had was based on his prior belief that the Greek, not the Hebrew, was the inspired version of the Bible. The translation in Justin's mind surpasses the original. Now, on the other hand, the Jews make almost the exact claim in the opposite direction against the Christians. A number of Greek-speaking Jews from the round of time of Jesus claim that the Greek translation virgin, which we see here, was, was a very loose, was not just a loose translation, but reflected how Christians had intentionally misled readers to think that the words of Isaiah applied to the birth of Jesus. So do you see what happens? Both sides are claiming that the other has tampered with the translation or the original to make a certain theological claim. In other words, if in the Jewish perspective, Christians doctored the translation to fit their theological purpose of affirming Christ as the son of David, the Messiah. The suspicion that the Jews had that the Christians had kind of tampered with the translation drove them in two directions. On the one hand, a number of Jews during the time of Jesus began rejecting 
the Greek translation of the Old Testament and returning to the Hebrew. They said, look, let's just go back to the Hebrew. Let, let's get around these, these sticky issues of translation. Let's just return to the original and read how it always was. And we see this beginning to happen in rabbinic circles, in early Jewish circles around the time of Jesus. Their fear was not just of Christian tampering. Rather, there was a general wariness about the Hellenization of Jewish culture. That is, there, were, there was this fear that the Jewish culture, by translating the, the scripture into Greek, was kind of losing its roots in Hebrew. Now, the second thing uh, that, that, that Jews did at this time was that they began replacing the Septuagint. And remember that LXX is just an abbreviation for Septuagint, L50XX1010, so that's 70, uh, the 70 translators it refers to. Some Jewish communities began replacing the Greek translation with other Greek translations that reflected what they thought was a better reading of the Old Testament. And of course, this happens uh, in the very passage that we talked about. One Jewish translator, this is the original Septuagint, look, the virgin Parthenos is with child. One Jewish translator changes it and says, look, the young woman, and in this case, he uses the Greek word, which actually means young woman. So here the Greek translator kind of updates the translation to not only match more closely what the Hebrew originally said, but also to underscore the fact from the Jewish perspective that this has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. So we see these controversies going back and forth about which translation is best or, or is even a translation better than the original Hebrew. Now there's a lot of technical details here. So let me pause and ask if there's any questions or perhaps it's sufficiently opaque to leave no questions uh, capable of being asked. Anything so far? Are you following the controversy, Paul? There are, there are, this is still active, and we'll get to this in week four of our study when we talk about more uh, modern translations of the Bible. There are still discrepancies among English versions about how to translate Isaiah 7.14. So you're going to see different translations still in the English come out. So it's very much of a live issue in Christian circles today. The NRSV, which is what you find in your pew Bibles, translates similarly to the original Hebrew. It reads young woman and not virgin. Now, in Matthew, the, ga the angel Gabriel, uh, in that translation, it says virgin. Now, why in the quotation of the Old Testament would you, in the NRSV, have virgin, even as the original was young woman? Precisely because, I'm glad you asked, precisely because the, uh, the New Testament is quoting from the Greek. The New Testament is quoting from the Greek. So the word that the angel Gabriel uses truly is parthenos, which means virgin. So there's even an issue, you might say, between the different halves of the canon about how they understand this, this verse. Cliff. I mean, this stuff is occurring uh, about 100 or 200 years before the time of Jesus, all the way up through about 400 uh, years after the time of Jesus. At that point, and this is a good segue to our next very brief topic, at that point, some different translations begin to emerge that replace the Greek, namely the Aramaic and uh, the Latin. There's still controversies there, uh, but the, contra the, sh the shape of those controversies begins to change. Um, I need to turn this over to Lydia here in just a moment, so let me just briefly say uh, that through the first 700 years of the church, 
there were about 12 translations in existence. There was the Old Latin, the Coptic, the Gothic, the Armenian, the Ethiopic, the Aramaic, the Syriac, the Arabic, the Slavonic, and the Georgian. Bless you. Now, the Georgian is not, hey, y'all, that translation. It's not the Georgian of the state of Georgia, but it's the, it's of the, the, uh, the Georgian of a particular part of the Caucasus region uh, near the uh, Black Sea, I believe it is. So that's a part of the country, not, not Georgia. They're a part of the world, not Georgia. Um, among these various translations, the two that are most important are the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, which is known as the Targums. Targum in Aramaic simply means uh, a translation. So these, this is just the, the, the rendering of Hebrew into Aramaic. Aramaic was very closely related to Hebrew. As I said last week, I, I consider it just poorly spelled Hebrew. Uh, it's very, very similar to it. Uh, what's interesting about the Aramaic translation, and I'll just say this, is that the Aramaic translation is really something more of a commentary than just a translation because it does it takes certain liberties with the text that, that, would, that would strike many of us as odd. So, for instance, in the Aramaic Targum, which, which comes from about the time of Jesus, certain stories are excluded. So if you don't like a certain story, the translators just leave it out. So when discussing the life of David, they don't tell the story about David and Bathsheba because that's embarrassing. David looks really bad in that story. So in the translation into Aramaic, they just leave it out. They leave it out. Um, in other cases, they revise certain texts, uh, particularly to, um, to clean up some points of theological embarrassment. I'll give you one quick example, because we talked about it earlier this summer. In the story of Cain and Abel, uh, Cain says at the end uh, to God, Cain says, Behold, you have driven me this day from the land and from your face, your face is God's face, I shall be hidden. That's the original Hebrew. But the, 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 the Jews who spoke Aramaic were uncomfortable with the fact that Cain would be hidden from God the whole rest of his life. So in their translation, they say the following. Behold, you have driven me from this day from the land. So same thing. But check out what's in yellow. But it is not possible for me to remain hidden from you. Friends, that's not an issue of translation. He just changes the text. And that new text, which has a more positive spin on God's relationship with Cain, uh, is what we find in the translation in the Aramaic. So we see these sorts of things all the time in the Aramaic, and in many ways it, it pushes the bounds of what counts as a translation in the first place. I would be tempted to say that this is commentary. Nevertheless, all translation involves some level of interpretation. Finally, the last thing I'll, I'll say that before turning over to uh, Lydia, the other important translation, uh, really perhaps maybe the most important translation prior to the Reformation was the Latin translation, sometimes referred to as Vulgate. Vulgate just means common, as in common language. Um, any guesses on where the Latin Vulgate would have originated? What city or part of the world? You want to say Rome, right? But up through the 400s, when the, the Latin came into existence, Rome still spoke Greek. I know that seems really weird. Why is it that Romans speak Greek? But that's what the main language of Rome through the 400s was, in fact, Greek. So the first uh, Latin translations actually developed in North Africa, uh, where Augustine is from, and, and, and other church leaders at that time. Now, what's interesting about the Latin, uh, it developed, actually, sorry, it developed it earlier than 400s. It developed in the mid-3rd century. By the 400s, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of different Latin translations of the Bible. So, so there wasn't just one Latin translation. There were many, many Latin translations. And the Pope at that time 
realized that many of these Latin translations differed. And the Pope found it confusing. He said, why do we have all these Latin translations? So the Pope goes to one of the leading scholars of the day, named Jerome, and he tasks Jerome with the, with the, with the job of selecting the best Latin translation and making that the standard for all of the church. Now, Jerome originally was, uh, was not happy with being asked to do this because he feared that people wouldn't like the choice that he made. He feared criticism. But apparently, when the Pope asks you to do something, you eventually do it. So in time, Jerome uh, does set out to establish a, a standard translation uh, of the Latin. And that standard translation, by about the year 400, uh, was, uh, was known as the Vulgate. Um, it, it was originally based, sorry, I'm a couple clicks behind here. Pope Damascus was the one who commissioned Jerome to do this. Uh, a couple things to note about the Vulgate. Um, it is based on the Hebrew, not the Greek. So Jerome looked back to the original Hebrew to make his translation, as opposed to the Greek translation. Um, second, like the Greek translations, Jerome included uh, a number of non-canonical books in his translation. However, he set them apart. He put them essentially in an appendix at the very end of the Bible, uh, books that we don't find in our canon today, he kind of set off in some ways. And this became an important point for the reformers much later. And the third point I'll make is that as Jerome feared, his translation was met with some resistance. Even Augustine, uh, the great theologian Augustine, opposed Jerome's translation of the Old Testament. But over the years, the Latin Vulgate came uh, to be the dominant translation in the church, in the Roman Catholic Church. So basically from the year 400 to 1400, it stood as the recognized standard text of scripture throughout much of the Christian world. And it was the basis of all pre-Reformation translations, such as Wycliffe's English Bible and the first printed Bibles in Germany and France, Italian, Czech, and other places. Uh, it, so it, it kind of the, the Latin translation had basically a thousand year reign as the one best translation of scripture, until, that is, we get to the Reformation. So we will finally get to some English translations, I hope, before the end of this class. But So, uh, let's see, here we are. So I'm going to cover quickly again uh, some of these earlier English translations uh, prior to the Reformation and sort of through the Reformation. The first, or the earliest surviving translations of the Gospels come to us in the form of glosses, which are uh, were interlinear, which means between the lines, uh, translations from these ma Latin manuscripts that Ryan was talking about. Our earliest surviving example, and I think we talked about it a little bit last week, was the is the Lindisfarne Gospel, which is an illuminated or illustrated copy of the four Gospels, and it came um, from Ireland around the eighth century. So you can see the, the main text is the Latin Vulgate, but in between, if you can sort of see there, there's this interlinear gloss. Um, so that was inserted 200 years or so later by someone else. And what it is, is a word-for-word -word translation of the Latin into Anglo-Saxon or Old English. So that was, oh yeah, sorry, I'm a little bit behind there. But yeah, so that's, one of, that's our earliest surviving uh, example of this. And then another early Old English translation comes from this Anglo-Saxon monk named Alfric, and this particular translation ends up having some really fascinating and far-reaching consequences. So, does anyone know what this picture is of? Does anyone recognize this statue? 
It's Moses, great. It's Michelangelo's statue of Moses that, that's in Rome. So what's odd about Moses in this statue? Yeah, he's got horns. Why? So, yeah, the reason that Moses has horns here is not because Michelangelo just got it wrong. There's a reason here. There's, he and lots of other church art from this time period, um, the reason why Moses is depicted in this way with horns, has to do with this Anglo-Saxon monk, and in particular his translation of the book of Exodus. So here's what happened. This Anglo-Saxon monk, Alfred, was commissioned to translate the first seven books of the Old Testament, the Heptateuch, from the Latin Vulgate into Anglo-Saxon, into the Anglo-Saxon vernacular. So in Exodus, after Moses descends from Mount Sinai, after talking to Yahweh, his face appears to be glowing, so much so that he has to wear a veil, if you remember. Now when Jerome, who Ryan was talking about earlier, wrote the Latin Vulgate, he encountered the Hebrew word Quran, which has different interpretive options. And it ends up mostly getting translated as beaming or shining, but you can also, you can also, be, you can also translate it as horn. Um, but the basic underlying idea is of something projecting outward. But Jerome decides to go with horn, or cornuta in Latin, which, oddly enough, at the time, made a lot of metaphorical sense because lots of powerful icons and rulers including Alexander the Great, were depicted with horns because they were symbols of power. So hundreds of years later, when Alfred comes along, he sees the, word, the Latin word that Jerome picked um, for, for uh, this Hebrew word. Uh, he sees it, dis cornuda, and so he just goes with the old English version of that, which is the word gehern. So in this version, rather than the people of Israel seeing a Moses with a shining face after talking with Yahweh, the people see a guy with horns on his head after talking with Yahweh. And you can see it there. Uh, and Aaron and the children of Israel seeing the face of Moses horned were afraid to come near, which actually kind of makes a lot of sense. It is a little bit more disturbing than just seeing a shining face. So here's the illustration of that. Here he is, the horned Moses. So when the illustrator for Alfred's, tra Alfred's translation depicted this scene, he of course drew a horned Moses, and this in turn ended up launching a whole uh, motif in church art where Moses had horns, with Michelangelo's statue of Moses being the most famous example. Um, unfortunately, this artistic depiction ended up ha contributing to this medieval myth that all Jews had horns, and the symbol of a horn ended up becoming associated with Jews to the degree that which Jews were forced at different points in history to identify themselves with the symbol of a horn. Uh, but there's no way that poor Alfred, the Anglo-Saxon monk, could have had any idea that that would have happened with his translation. But it goes to show that even in the most seemingly faithful of translations, things can get lost or misinterpreted, and those interpretations can have far-reaching consequences for good or for ill. So we're gonna skip ahead all the way to the 14th century, <laughs> uh, because at this point in England, in 14th century England, there still does not exist a complete English translation of the Bible. And this is where we meet John Wycliffe. And he comes onto the scene, and here is a 19th century uh, painting of him and his followers called the Lollards. And so he, he's born in 1320 Yorkshire. He's an Oxford theologian. Uh, he's a bit of a political and religious radical. He had very little tolerance for the corruption that he saw in the church. 
especially with how they treated the poor. Now, Wycliffe and his followers firmly believed that scripture should be accessible to everyone, not just the property of the church, and to withhold it from the people was actually a sin. So two of his pupils, not Wycliffe himself probably, uh, translate the Bible, but it was a rough translation. Uh, I think, as Ryan said earlier, it was from, from the Vulgate. They used, that was their uh, source text. So it was more of a translation of a translation. They're still not translating directly from the original languages. And there was no printing press yet. So this was all written by hand. And what's really amazing is that even though this would have been really labor intensive to make and expensive to buy, there are still 200 copies that still exist today. So obviously, this was incredibly popular. Um, but it was also incredibly resisted by those in power because a bill was introduced in Parliament um, that was, 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 it was introduced but not implemented, but it said it would outlaw any English version of the Bible um, and threatened imprisonment of anyone who had a copy of it. And Wycliffe was so despised that 40 years after he died, the Pope actually ordered that his body be exhumed, uh, burned, and the ashes be scattered into the river. So he was not well liked, but by those in power anyways. But even still, Wycliffe's translation um, helped instill the English language as a literary language. Prior to this, uh, Latin was the language of religion and French enough, was the language of the nobility and the upper classes. So really it was seen like the, only the poor spoke English. So this was really revolutionary. But keeps going with William Tyndale, who would continue that work. Um, and he took it in, uh, a step further. He is who is credited with the majestic language that we find in the Bible. Um, the stylistic elegance of his translations really set the standard for the vernacular to the point where it was, it's been said that he made an, a language for England. Um, so he's, he's born in 1494, so after the invention of the printing press, which was in 1440. He's also Oxford and Cambridge educated. Uh, and he laments the fact that England's the only country at this point, only country in Europe at this point, that doesn't have a printed translation of the New Testament. He's a big fan of Luther, and what Luther's doing currently um, in Germany, uh, which was translating from the original Greek and Hebrew um, into a readable literary Bible that was in the vernacular German. So this is what he resolves to do. He resolves to print a really polished English translation of the New Testament from the actual Greek. So he flees to Germany to do this um, because it's way too dangerous for him to stay in England and do this. And he completes the New Testament in 1526 and hundreds of his Bibles start to be smuggled into England. And the English authorities are not happy, as you can imagine. Uh, Cardinal Wolsey, a very important cleric, uh, condemns them and orders that all copies should be seized and burned. However, uh, let's see where this, oh yeah, okay. However, this does not do anything to stop their popularity. Copies continue to pour into England, including pirated copies. And it was the case back then, as it is today, that pirated copies of media are evidence of its popularity. So I'm a Game of Thrones fan. I watched it legally, I might add. But recently, the president of HBO's programming was commenting on how this show is, you know, has a, facing this really big pirating problem. Um, and in commenting, he said, is actually a, a, a compliment, because piracy is something that comes along 
when you, when, only when you're doing something that's wildly successful. So in a similar way, because Tyndale's Bible was being pirated along with these genuine copies, we know that it was in very high demand and people lost their lives for it. Uh, Tyndale's associates in England were tortured and killed and eventually Tyndale himself is tracked down and he's condemned as a heretic and executed in 1536. Uh, so Tyndale's New Testament was also just as much of a literary work as it was just a straight up translation of a religious text. Uh, he's credited with sort of legitimizing the English language and giving us some of the more familiar renditions of Bible verses. So as an example of how Tyndale really took translation to the next level, and also just to kind of get a sense of what's involved with translating, because um, it's not as straightforward a process as you might imagine, uh, this is Genesis 1-3. Uh, uh, the first one is Wycliffe's version. So he wrote, light be made, and light was made. Doesn't exactly, like, jump off the page, right? But Tyndale's version is, let there be light, and there was light. And of course, that's the one we're more familiar with. Uh, there was a, there's some other great examples of this, but clearly, translating, you know, it takes some finesse. It's not just finding word-for-word -word equivalents, and that's what... Tyndale was very good at doing. Uh, our next guy, however, was not as skillful at doing this. This is Miles Coverdale. Um, and he, which Ryan showed a picture of last week, he was a, a fugitive priest who worked with Tyndale in Germany. Um, he did not possess the same linguistic skills as Tyndale, and maybe that's why he looked so dreadfully unhappy. But uh, nevertheless, he is still credited with completing the first uh, printed English Bible. Tyndale never got to finish the Old Testament, um, but so, so Coverdale used mostly Tyndale's translation of the New Testament and the Old Testament with some help from other sources. But he dedicates it to Henry VIII, who is now broken away from the Church of Rome, and uh, he also chose the Vulgate ordering of the Old Testament books, and I think Ryan touched on this earlier. For the first time, the books of the Apocrypha, Apocrypha were printed separately, um, and that has been the practice ever since for English Protestant Bibles, if they're included at all. But, uh, however, clergy, the clergy are still not super keen on the idea of common people reading the Bible. Um, they're very uncomfortable with that. And so Tyndale's Bible and Coverdale, Coverdale's Bible gets outlawed. And things get worse when uh, the Catholic Queen Mary takes the throne and Bible translation has to go underground once again. And this time, the anti-monarchical Calvinists escape to Geneva, where there are other translators gathered translating the Bible, and they produce the Geneva Bible in 1560. And uh, this particular version had really novel features. Um, they had maps, and I think I have a close-up of it. That's one of the maps that they have. This is of the Garden of Eden, which was really novel at the time. It has charts, and also included uh, notes, like exegetical notes, that would be helpful to the reader to understand uh, the text, so their interpretations, basically. Uh, and they were not very subtly anti-royalist. They were very Calvinist in tone, and uh, which made them very popular with the lay people and very controversial, of course, to those in power. Uh, as an example, uh, the commentary that was included for Revelation 9-11, which talks about the angel of death, uh, they identify this figure with the Pope, reading, uh, the angel of death, which is the Antichrist, the Pope, king of hypocrites, and Satan's ambassador. 
So obviously the Roman Catholics were reading this. They were not super happy with that. Uh, but it was also, it was incredibly uh, popular for these reasons and also because it was cheaper. Uh, but also, oh, one of, the other, one of the other really cool features was that this is the first time that we encounter uh, numbered verses, and it sets the standard for versification um, going forward. Earlier, the Bible was only in paragraphs, so now you could actually identify certain passages in Scripture with a number. So to sum up, in the 16th century, and we'll, we had to skip through a, a bunch of other competing translations, but suffice to say, there's a lot of competing translations out there at this time, each with their own theological and political perspectives. So now Cassie is going to bring us into the 17th century, where they start to uh, reconcile these different translations. Thank you. Lydia traced a lot of the turmoil of the 16th century, and England as a country swung from Protestant, well, I'm sorry, from Catholic to not so Catholic when King Henry VIII separated himself from the Roman Catholic Church because he wanted a divorce, uh, back to Catholic with Queen Mary, back to Protestant with Queen Elizabeth I, and then finally, finally, England uh, gets to King James. Now, England was a country in an identity crisis when King James took the throne. And one of the very first tasks that he had was, how do I unify this deeply fractured country? King James ruled Scotland and England, and he was the first monarch to rule that united kingdom. But it was also a deeply divided kingdom that he inherited. On the one hand, he had the Puritans. The Puritans, in all that they did, were plain, honest, conscientious people. They had, uh, their church buildings were simple. The dress of their ministers was simple. They wanted simple worship. They wanted to focus on piety, and they were deeply suspicious of authority, particularly the type of authority that they saw in the layers of ecclesial power in the Catholic Church and also in the Church of England. Now, the Puritans, you might not be surprised to find out, preferred the Geneva Bible. And for all the reasons Lydia mentioned, they were envious of what the reformers were doing in mainland Europe, and they wanted to see more reformation in their own country. And so the Geneva Bible, with its anti-monarchical stance, was a good fit for the sensibilities of the Puritans. On the other side, King James had the Church of England, and they valued tradition, and they valued transcendent worship. If you've ever been to Westminster Abbey, you know that it's anything but plain, and not only were their buildings beautiful, but their, their priests were arrayed in beautiful robes, very richly dressed. They held elaborate worship services, they focused on ritual, and they valued authority. Not only were they comfortable with authority, they were somewhat cozy with it, because we remember that the head of the Church of England was not the Pope, but King James himself. Needless to say, the Anglicans did not use or even like the Geneva Bible. Instead, they used their own Bible that was called the Bishop's Bible. The Bishop's Bible, the name really tells you everything you need to know. It was written by and for the bishops. It was written by those in power for those in power. And King James 
didn't entirely want to get rid of it. But King James had to figure out a way to get these two groups, the Puritans and the Anglicans, together to reconcile their differences. And so in 1604, he called a conference at Hampton Court. The goal of the meeting was to reconcile the religious differences. And within a few days, the debates grew heated, and it seemed that little progress would be made. But then one delegate, one delegate, in fact a Puritan, observed that if the Anglicans and Puritans were to get on the same page, perhaps they should use the same book. Well, King James wanted to get rid of the Geneva Bible and all of its anti-monarchy talk, and so he jumped at this opportunity. While the conference itself didn't resolve the question of which book would be the book for all the Puritans and the Anglicans, King James began to work on the problem. And he did what, uh, what a Presbyterian would do, actually, and I'm, I'm proud of him. When faced with a complicated task, we call a committee. <laughs> and King James did that. He called a committee of 50 of the best scholars in England, and he divided them into six companies. Each company took a portion of the Bible to translate. They used the best Hebrew text for the Old Testament, the best Greek text for the New Testament, and they were given a set of 15 rules to follow. Now, most of the rules were about the process, who would have authority to approve, how to resolve conflicts, but then a few of the rules actually influenced the direction of this new version. For one, the Bishop's Bible was to be the basis of this revision. It was to be a revision. Secondly, the ecclesial words like church and priest should be kept instead of the words like congregation or senior. This was a contradiction to William Tyndale's efforts who had tried so hard to democratize the Bible and to take the church as an institution out of the pages of scripture. King James said, no, 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 we're keeping the church in. Finally, there were to be no notes, annotations, or notes in the margin like there were in the Geneva Bible. And again, this was an attempt by, by the powers that be uh, to keep out all the talk of kings and popes as tyrants. In only three years, the project was complete. And in 1611, the King James Version, as it would be called, uh, was, was available to all of England. And it was considered the best available English Bible um, by some, by some and by most eventually. It took about 50 years for the KJV to really secure its place as the standard English Bible. But when it did, it became the standard Bible across all the English-speaking world for nearly three centuries. Because of its longevity, it's made lasting impacts on our religious practices, on our language, and even our culture. Every Sunday, we pray the Lord's Prayer. We pray the prayer that Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know about you, but when I pray myself, I don't use the word thy, thou, thee, thine. I don't, I don't even know how to use those words outside of the Lord's Prayer. And we use it for the Lord's Prayer because it sounds transcendent. And shouldn't we be formal when we're addressing God? It's ironic, then, that the translators of the King James Version didn't use these words because they were formal. They used them because they were informal. 
These were the pronouns that one used with their family members or a close friend. They intended to indicate that God was close to us, near us, but we've used it in a very different way. Nevertheless, the King James influences our worship practice even as we've, I guess, reappropriated it in a new way. One of the biggest impacts, however, of the King James Bible has been in our language and our culture. And its contribution to English idioms can't be underestimated. The KJV is credited with being a source of more idioms than even Shakespeare. One man attempted to count, and he came up with 257, but his caveat was that there probably are a little more or less, depending on who's counting. But to be fair, not all the credit can be given to the KJV. Uh, Lydia mentioned that Tyndale had done very, very hard, careful work translating the uh, scripture into English, into a good, elegant, beautiful uh, form of English. And in fact, 80% of the Bishop's Bible was based on Tyndale, and perhaps just as much of the KJV is also based on Tyndale. And so when we want to uh, give credit to these idioms, we really have to give credit to Tyndale for creating them, but perhaps to the KJV for popularizing them. If you've ever had a thorn in the flesh, you can thank the KJV. If you know someone who acts holier than thou, you can thank the KJV. And if you've ever protested, of course, I've never protested this, but if you've ever protested, I'm not my brother's keeper, you can thank the KJV. Those idioms have made their way into our movies, into our TV shows, into our books, into plays, everywhere throughout our language. Dolly Parton's very first album in 1971 was called Coat of Many Colors. And this was a reference to Genesis 37.3 and Joseph's Coat of Many Colors. Just this spring, CBS released a series titled The Good Fight. I don't know that they intended to quote 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, but they did. Other examples that we see are out of the mouths of babes. This is in both Psalms and in Matthew. My brother's keeper, I mentioned, Genesis 4.9. This is what Cain says when he's asked about Abel, after he kills Abel. A fly in the ointment, Ecclesiastes 10.11. Pride goes before a fall. We all know that one. Proverbs 16.18. And then no new thing under the sun. Again, Ecclesiastes. The KJV reigned supreme for 300 years. It was only unseated from its throne in the 20th century. So next week, we'll take a look at modern English translations, how they built on the work of Tyndale and Wycliffe and Coverdale and so many others, and how these translations align with and also react to the King James Version. Thank you. All right, thanks. All right, thank you all. Have a good week, and hopefully we'll see you here same time, same place next week. Mm -hmm.